Welcome back to episode 5 of the Paul Sock Podcast. I'm Dr. Jerome Devitt. I'm delighted to report that things are going from strength to strength for the podcast, and that we're getting lots of positive feedback on both the episodes themselves, and particularly on the episode notes and the listen-along guides that both students and teachers seem to be finding particularly useful. You can take that as your reminder that all those resources are available to you freely to download at www.palsockpodcast.com right now. The focus of today's episode is on the European Union itself, and it's going to be a jam-packed one. We'll be starting with the amazing Miss Vicky Malcolm, a teacher of French, German and European studies here at the King's Hospital, Palmerstown. She's a teacher who's heavily involved in the EPAS, the European Parliament Ambassador School Programme, that many of the students here in our school have benefited enormously from. If you aren't familiar with it, check it out. I'll leave a link in the episode notes on the website. She's going to walk us through the main institutions of the EU and what their roles and responsibilities are. This is key to our understanding of the decision-making process at the European level. I've often heard it said that to understand Europe is to understand how the EU institutions work, because the way in which those decisions are made can be massively influential on the outcome of the decision-making process itself. We'll also be talking with a number of students who took part in the recent Euroscholar competition, which gave them the opportunity to participate in discussions and debates at the European Parliament in Strasbourg last year which I know I would find a daunting experience, so fair play to those students for taking the giant leap. Finally, we'll be closing out the episode by talking with MEP for Dublin, Member of the European Parliament for Dublin, former Fine Gael TD and Minister Brian Hayes, who will give us a bit of an insider's perspective on what it's like to be involved as a legislator or a lawmaker in the EU. Since recording this episode, Brian announced that he won't actually be standing for re-election in the European Parliament next year. So I'd offer him particular thanks for taking the time to talk with me on one of his recent visits to our school. And hey, at least there'll be one job open next year. So you can see that this episode will owe lots of debts to many people. I'd thank them all. Let's dive in. So I started off by asking Miss Malcolm to outline the structure and responsibilities of the main European Union institutions. The three main institutions would be the European Parliament, the one we are most familiar with, and the body that represents us, the voters in Europe, the European Commission, and the European Council, not to be confused with the Council of the European Union or the Council of Europe, which is something you have talked about in a previous podcast. Um, The European Parliament, maybe to start with that, is uh, the the members, the MEPs, are directly elected by us, the voters. Um, There are 751 MEPs in the European Parliament, and one of those is the president, currently Antonio Tajani. Uh, His tenure is up in 2019, so there will be European elections in May next year. So not only will the European Parliament change, as in the MEPs will change, but the President of the Parliament will also change. His tenure is a five-year tenure. He is elected directly then by the MEPs themselves. So in the Parliament, the MEPs sit not according to country, but they sit according to political allegiance from left to right in the hemicycle. Um, The biggest party is the EPP, the European People's Party, and that would be the party that the Fine Gael MEPs belong to. 
um, but it goes from the left, somebody like Lynn Boylan, for example, who sits with the Nordic Green Alliance, all the way over to the likes of Golden Dawn, Nigel Farage on the far right. Um, the European Commission is the second of the, of the three. That is where the commissioners sit. Um, there are tr there's a commissioner for each member state and they represent an area of policy. So our commissioner is Phil Hogan and he is responsible um, mostly for agriculture. And he is there, unlike an MEP who is there to represent me as a voter, the commissioners are there not to represent national interest, but they are there to represent the EU. They are there to work on EU policy as a whole, so they're not supposed to be pushing the agenda of, for example, the Irish Farmers Association. Um, the president of the commission currently is Jean-Claude Juncker, and he also has a five-year tenure, which is also up in 2019, so it's big change in all of the institutions next year. He is elected by the member states, the heads of, of the member states, and he, but he has to also be approved by the parliament. That is the big job, the commission president, and it's, there's a lot of posturing and work going on at the moment as to who is going to be the next president. The EU Parliament are putting forward, they have this process that they call the Spitzenkandidaten, so the head honcho, if you like, and they are uh, put forward by the various parties. So, for example, the EPP, the biggest party, their Spitzenkandidat is Manfred Weber, and he seems to be the person who is tipped to get the job um, when it comes up. The final one then would be the European Council. The European Council is... Strictly speaking, it's just the, the, the heads of state and the president of the council, who is at the moment Donald Tusk. Again, his tenure is up in 2019. Um, unlike the five years in the parliament and the commission, it's only two and a half years in the council. He's in his second term of office and he is elected by the um, heads of state. The, uh, he also represents the EU externally in matters of security and foreign affairs, for example. And they would be the, th the three main bodies and the three bodies that work together when it comes to the legislative process. There's also the European Court of Justice that's based in Luxembourg and the uh, Court of Human Rights that's based in Strasbourg. It's time for Quote of the Day. Now, because I'm a bit of an historian, I'm going to use today's Quote of the Day as a thin pretense for a tiny bit of extra history. Today's quote comes from the Schluman Declaration of 9th of May, 1950. Schluman was the French foreign minister, and in a speech he proposed the creation of the European Coal and Steel Community, whose members would pool coal and steel production. Why would they do this? Well, if you're trading with a former adversary of two world wars and numerous other conflicts in precisely the raw materials needed to make the weapons on an industrial scale, well then it's far less likely that those two adversaries will end up blowing lumps out of each other on the battlefield. 
Here's how he laid out his vision for greater European integration. Europe, he said, will not be made at once or in according to a single plan. It will be built through concrete achievements which first create a de facto solidarity. Now, the European coal and steel community, whose first six founding members were France, West Germany as it was then, Italy, the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg, was one in the first of a series of supranational European institutions that eventually became the European Economic Community and eventually today's European Union. So it didn't happen in one simple plan, as Schluman suggests. The original vision behind the European coal and steel community was that people were determined to prevent another terrible war like World War II, which had finished just five years previously. European governments concluded that pooling coal and steel production would, in the words of the declaration, make war between the historic rivals of France and Germany, quote, not merely unthinkable, but materially impossible. It was thought, I think correctly, that merging the economic interests would help raise living standards of all the countries and be the first step towards a more united Europe. It's quite hard to put into words, but in trying to assess or judge the European Union, try to measure its benefits in terms of the costs, in terms of millions of men and countless pounds, francs, lira and marks that have been saved throughout all of the wars that haven't happened simply because of the existence of the European coal and steel community, then the European economic community, and eventually the European Union. Even the best mathematician will struggle with that. Now, back in the day, the European Parliament was considered a bit of a talking shop, with little real power, but over time that imbalance has been addressed somewhat. The first step in that process was co-decision-making, and beyond but I'll allow Frau Malcolm to take over the story. Okay, so so co-decision-making has also changed. Um, it, it's not now called co-decision, it's called ordinary legislative procedure. And it is in place since the Lisbon Treaty in 2009. So the Lisbon Treaty is, is, is essential, really, in understanding how the decision-making process works because there were a lot of changes as a result of the Lisbon Treaty and the EU institutions were given a lot more power as a result of the Lisbon Treaty. So the way it works is that the Commission, the EU Commission, is the only body that is able to propose new legislation and able to enforce and enact legislation. So there's dialogue between the three institutions, the Parliament, the Council, the Commission, as to where new legislation needs to be um, brought in but only the Commission can propose it so they come up with their proposed legislation and what happens then in the decision making process is it goes jointly to the Council and to the Parliament for discussion and debate that's the first reading if after the first reading there isn't consensus between the Parliament and the Council then it goes to a second reading once le um, amendments, let's say, have been put forward by the Parliament or by the Council. If after the second reading there isn't consensus, which is often the case, it goes to then what's called a, a conciliation committee. So they would be MEPs, like our own Mairead um, McGuinness, who's the uh, Vice President of the European Parliament, but she also works on the conciliation committee and they would work to 
resolve the differences that the council and the parliament have it should be noted as well that the parliament have the right to veto or to block the council so if the council are in agreement but the parliament isn't then they can veto the whole process after the conciliation committee it goes to a third reading in the council and the parliament and then it's either adopted or it's rejected if it's adopted it goes back to the commission um, it has to be voted on in parliament so that the actual text of the legislation is voted on in parliament and that happens only in strasbourg so the parliament is split over two locations they meet three weeks out of four in brussels and that's where they do their committee work and the fourth week there in Strasbourg. So whenever there's a plenary session, that has to happen in Strasbourg, and it's not allowed to happen in Brussels. That's part of the founding kind of treaty of the EU. So they get to their third reading, and if it's, as I say, if, it, if it's accepted, it goes back to the Commission, and then the Commission feed it down through the Member States and produce the legislation and the, di the EU directive for each Member State to follow. It's law, it has to be implemented in each Member State. If it's rejected, then it's completely rejected. And if they want to bring it back in any way, it has to be brought back in. Right, it has to go through the whole process again. So it has to go uh, come back as new legislation, and it goes back through the first, second, third readings. Um, when there is consensus in the Parliament, there has to be fifty-five percent of the member states have to support it, and that would be currently sixteen out of twenty-eight countries or member states who have to support it in order for it to progress within those 16 member states there has to be representation of 65 percent of the eu population so that's whatever that is 320 million or thereabouts so the meps who support it have to represent that number of citizens in order for it to to progress and that is the way that the dialogue works now as a result of the lisbon treaty So, in today's Untangling the Terminology, we're going to follow up on an issue that Madame Malcolm just mentioned, the idea of what constitutes a majority in different settings. Now, we all assume that the word majority of any group is half of the number of participants plus one. But let's be more precise than that. That's what we call a simple majority, 50% plus one of those who turn up to vote. But we can go much deeper, because we could start by saying that majorities work on a sliding scale. In theory, at least, if only one MEP was to turn up to vote, they'd constitute a simple majority. However, some decisions have to be made by a, an absolute majority, which means 50% plus one of the total number of MEPs, so that'd be 376 out of the 751, no matter how many are in the chamber at the time. So if only 375 MEPs are in the chamber, no absolute majority can be met. The most stringent form of majority is unanimity, or complete consensus. And as Madame Malcolm says, this applies to issues decided by the Council of the European Union when it comes to areas such as taxation, foreign and security policy, or migration and asylum issues. If these, if these decisions have to be unanimous, then each member state effectively has the power of the veto, or to block, any changes in any of these areas. If anyone votes against the proposal, it just doesn't go through. On most issues, however, the Council take decisions by 
Qualified Majority Voting, or QMV, which in some ways is the most complicated and needs a little explanation. Qualified Majority is the most widely used voting method in the Council. According to the website of the Council of the European Union, which we'd have to concede is a pretty reliable source when it comes to these kind of things, about 80% of all EU legislation is adopted with this method. As Frau Malcolm indicated, it means that two conditions have to be met. Firstly, that 55% of member states vote in favour. In practice, this means 16 out of 28, until Brexit at least. But also, secondly, that the proposal is supported by member states representing at least 65% of the total EU population. This is sometimes also known as the double majority rule, and this whole process was introduced in the Lisbon Treaty that took effect in November 2014. Why would they make it so elaborate? Well, one reason we could think about is the necessity to balance the requirements of small countries against the needs of bigger countries. Would it be right for four or five large countries with big populations to gang up on all the little countries and railroad their own proposals through? Small con countries like Little Old Ireland would effectively have no voice in a system like that. Another safeguard that exists in the EU's QMV system is the existence of what is called a blocking minority, which is basically when at least four council members representing 35% of the EU population can stop a proposal from progressing. In other words, where the bigger countries can avoid being ganged up on themselves by all the smaller ones. But wait, it gets more complicated. You knew it would, didn't you? For proposals not coming from the Commission or the Foreign Minister, there must be 72% of member states behind them, which means a blocking minority can be formed with as little as 28% of member states. In some ways, this new voting system gives the bigger member states much stronger voting powers in the Council of Ministers than in the previous system. Yet another form of majority is known as a plurality. In other words, in an election like we'd see in the UK parliamentary elections for Westminster, whoever has the most votes gets elected, regardless of whether or not they've reached the 50% plus one margin of victory. Finally, it's worth remembering that if you don't want to vote for something, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to vote against it. You always have the third option of abstaining from the vote. Though, just to make this complicated, if you're in the EU's QMV system, an abstention counts as a vote against. If you want to ensure that the EU is democratic, or consider how democratic it is, you must also ask, have they chosen the right type of majority votes for each type of decision? I know all those numbers and figures sound very complicated, but trust me, when you jot them down, as you might do with the Listen Along worksheet, they'll become an awful lot clearer. In this week's The Students Strike Back, I talked with a number of Miss Malcolm students who participated in last year's Euro Scholla competition. Under Miss Malcolm's expert guidance, they won a trip to the European Parliament in Strasbourg, where they participated in a range of debates and other activities. I was delighted personally to see how many of those students decided to take on politics and society for the Leaving Cert, and was equally happy when... Many of them showed me that they had far greater knowledge of the European policy than I did. I started by asking Emma how they qualified for the competition. So we had to design a logo for the Euroscola School Ambassador Programme um, in Ireland. Um, so a few students from the TG department came together and designed a logo on the computer 
and out of the whole of Ireland, out of the European ambassador schools, um, we were selected. Um, it was based on the hemicycle of the European Parliament in Strasbourg. Um, it had a lot of colour, it had the stars in there, so I think those factors um, add us to win. I continued by asking Emma what the most memorable moment of her trip to Strasbourg was. For me, I think it was asking a question to the vice president of the European Parliament. So that he's a Greek politician, uh, Papa Demoulis. Um, I asked a question uh, concerning gender equality because he's the chair of the gender equality group. I asked another one of the students, Anna, what skills she thought participating in Euroschola had helped her to develop. I found that my public speaking improved. So, like, I was more confident in asking questions and trying to put myself out there because at the start when I wanted to ask a question I didn't ask a question because I was like oh maybe I shouldn't ask that but then we, we then went into separate groups and we were talking about different topics that we were really interested in and I really enjoyed that and I just kept getting into the like I kept getting into the argument and getting into the debate and it was brilliant like oh, that was the first time that I've ever experienced something like that so but could she bring that back to a pulse classroom yeah I think so I think it's it's helped a lot with my interest as well. Kind of, I realised how much I enjoyed studying politics and different stuff and how they work in the European Parliament. So that also helped them when I come back to Polsock because you're looking at the same sort of stuff and it's really enjoyable. I just really enjoyed the whole experience. I was quite struck by the fact that both Anna and Emma mentioned that when they were in Strasbourg, they struck up a number of personal friendships. Sometimes when we're looking at big, dominant institutions, we forget that they're run by people. Here's what Emma had to say. There was one school from each of the 28 member states um, in the European Parliament, and it was amazing because, first of all, they had to debate through their second language, through English, um, and they all did it incredibly well. Um, and there was just a real sense of kind of community and solidarity. Um, all of us here united by a common factor, just being European, um, 400 teenagers in a room interested in politics. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make any friends? Yeah, yeah, I did. Got, got a few Instagrams and um, just discussing even our different education systems. It was really insightful and, yeah, really eye-opening. Before I was prepared to let Miss Malcolm go back to the massive pile of exams that were sitting on her table, I asked her what advice she had for students that might help them to see the importance of the European Union in their day-to-day -day life. The European Union, when we study that through European Studies in, in Form 4, we look at the ways that the European Union affects your day-to-day -day life. And people don't necessarily realise until you maybe go out and even just take a walk around. And if you're driving, let's say, to Cork on the motorway, you can see all the way along the motorway that this part of the motorway was funded by the EU. So the infrastructure that we have but also just the abilities, from a student's point of view, the ability to go uh, through the Erasmus programme and to study abroad. Um, we're very fixated on the fact that you have to go to UCD or you have to go to Trinity, but I work with the students often and I say, well, why don't you go and look and see, can you do your course in any other university in the EU? Um, because that is open to you through Erasmus um, we'll, The initiative is fantastic, just to be able to go to another country. In our final section today, I was lucky enough to get some time with MEP Brian Hayes on one of his many school visits to us. 
the most surprising reaction to the hour-long talk and Q&A that he had with the European Studies and Politics and Society students were the words of one of my own students who commented afterwards, God, he actually answered our questions. I didn't think he would. Now, I'm not actually sure if that's a compliment to a politician or not, but I certainly think it reflected the frankness of the conversation that the students had with that particular politician. When I talked with Brian afterwards, I started off by asking him how he would defend the European Parliament and the EU against many of its detractors who charge it with being a quote-unquote undemocratic institution. I think there's more democracy in the European Union and its institutions than there is in, in, in sovereign governments and sovereign parliaments. I, I know because I've been there. I was in the, the Dáil for 18 years. I was a government minister. I'm four years in the European Parliament. I'm actually quite taken aback by the level of transparency between the Commission and the Parliament, much more transparency than is the case between, say, the Council and the Parliament. And I think any time you go looking for information, they're more than happy to answer your questions, and they actually listen to what you have to say. As a government minister in Ireland, you're given a kind of a, a diktat from the civil servants to say, Minister, we're doing this, that and the other where in the European Parliament, actually, there's a huge engagement between MEPs and the Commission. The other point to make is, since co-decision-making, um, the directly elected members of the 500 million people of the European Union, i.e. the MEPs, have now the exact same power as the Council in terms of legislative files. And that's a huge difference, a huge reform that's been implemented. Now, can we do things differently? Of course we can. But I think people who put forward the argument that you know, there's more power locally and greater sovereignty uh, than is in Europe. It's just a kind of a nationalistic argument. It's not actually based on fact. And I think the other argument I'd make is that, you know, uh, what we what we need to do is, is take decisions locally which should be taken locally. We shouldn't have Europe involving itself in decisions which uh, it has no, you know, direct involvement in. But on the big questions which do require a kind of geopolitical response, and an EU-wide response, that's where decisions should be taken. So things like climate or things like, you know, rebooting the EU economy, they, they, they are things that should be taken at an EU-wide level, but local decisions should be taken locally. Proper, we have to get that, that, that balance right. Um, this might be a slightly thorny one, but uh, Irish MEPs last year were ranked as some of the least influential MEPs in the Parliament. Uh, how would you respond to that, um, that accusation, I suppose, and what could be done by Irish MEPs to improve that situation? Well, it's fake news by a stupid website that produces lots of stupid information, and it provides information without a context. Uh, the context is we have 11 out of 751, uh, and on the basis of proportionality, which is the fair to hunt system that they operate in the European Parliament, the bigger countries, surprise, surprise, get more of the reports, get more of the posts, get more of the um, positions and as a consequence uh, one fake news stupid website produces information and other silly journalists then declare that the Irish have less influence. So when you look at the substance of the issue you'll discover that insofar as any small countries have a huge amount of clout we have as much if not more clout and I think uh, that's borne out by comparative looks at other similar sized countries but you cannot compare Ireland v Germany Ireland v France because they have you know 70 or 80 MEPs we have 11 so I think it's just part of the kind of it's just part of the anti-politician nonsense that you hear Of those 11 MEPs are there times when you 
act as a unit and are there times when you're strictly sticking along party lines and how does how do you manage that balance between the responsibilities i'd like us to work more and we don't work enough and i i, I don't think there's any interest among some of the other political parties i have to say uh, and i think it's built into the you know maybe the personalities the length of experience they have in politics um, whatever some people regard the european parliament as some kind of Ballymagash, where they can just attack the Irish government. I'm kind of beyond that on my stage in politics. Yes, I'm a Fine Gael MEP. Yes, I support the government. But I'm also good at the government. I take my own mind on things. One of the advantages of being an MEP is that you, you have much more free votes to make your own views up about things rather than follow the three of the Dáil. So I think one of the big problems, we lack um, we lack uh, MEPs in the, the two other big groups. So Fine Gael is part of the European People's Party, the biggest parliamentary grouping. We have four. We work as a cohesive unit. Uh, we don't have anyone really in the S&D group. We have one independent member. We, the Liberal Party is not represented because they lost the seats. And Fianna Fáil, um, which have one MEP who left them, is no longer in their group, the, the Liberal group. So the deals are done in the centre. They're not done on the hard left and the hard right, the kind of GUE group or the UKIP gang. It, it, they're done in the centre. And what we lack is two things. We need more representation, I think, from, from the, the serious centre parties, like Fianna Fáil and Labour. I might be doing myself a little job by saying <laughs> that, but it's the truth. And we also need we also need more experienced politicians, I think, in the European Parliament, who have served a time in government, who know that this is around compromise, who've been at a c council table, who've been at a Eurogroup table. And I think that would make an awful lot difference in terms of the total representation. I closed out by asking Brian what issue, if he could choose only one, would he recommend that politics and society students focus on in order to better understand the workings of the EU, both now and into the future? The one issue I think that would help them make, for them to understand the institutions and the, and the interplay with, with the institutions, um, I think is really on migration, because we don't have a settled policy in the European Union on that. We've got over the last summer, the previous summer, it was chaos and crisis. And the European Parliament have been a settled view on it as to the quota system and how that should operate. It took the Council over two years to come to that view. And I think looking at that issue gives you a good insight as to how the Union's institutions work and, and the power play. I mean, the European Union is complicated. It's not easy. It's hard to teach. It's hard to teach. It's, hard to, it's even hard to be there sometimes. Yeah. It takes a long while. It's not easy. But, of course, it's not easy bringing 28 different heads together and 28 different languages and 28 different cultures and political systems. And it's, it can always be improved. But it's, I don't accept the charge that it's inherently undemocratic. Uh, it needs to become more democratic. Uh, and subsidiarity is a big part of play of that. But I think the migration question would be a fascinating question to look at to see how policy is determined and ultimately really where power lays. I mean, if, if I'm very, very honest about it, despite my, my remarks about co-decision making, the council really has a huge amount of skin in the game in this because it represents the prime ministers, the ministers, the governments. And maybe that's as it should be on the basis that they're uh, coming from member state countries. So I think migration would be fascinating to look at in terms of understanding how the institutions work. Thanks so much for your time, Brian. Thanks a lot. So that's it for today. There's a lot to digest. Now, 
As the show's host, it's not really for me to give a strong personal opinion one way or the other on any matter, but I will say this about the EU. Much of the criticism you hear of it is born out of a place of ignorance. So I don't mind if you end up as either pro-EU or anti-EU, though an opinion poll from the Red Sea in May 2018 suggested that support for the EU in Ireland was at a whopping 92%. Either way, I'd want you to be basing your position on facts rather than spurious straight banana bunkum. The fact that the European Commission has a section on its website entitled Euromyths, a link in the episode notes that might be of use to students studying fake news for their citizenship project, that should tell you just how much distorted info there is on the EU floating about on the internet. Anyway, I hope you'll subscribe to the channel and visit the website for the extra resources on www.polsockpodcast.com and will join us for episode 6, due out in the next few weeks, where we'll be taking a deeper dive into the often confusing world of Brexit. But for now, all I'll do is remind you that you're not apart from society. You're a part of society. Bye for now. <laughs>